going to talk about life-threatening asthma exacerbations. Is the patient tripodic? What about other beta agonists? Let's treat them. How do we manage these patients? Remember, this is a ventilatory disease, not an oxygen deficient disease. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. That's a lot to juggle. Welcome, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I hope that you're doing well this podcast. Got another exciting education topic for this month's podcast. We're going to talk about asthma. We're going to talk about severe asthma. We're going to talk about life-threatening asthma exacerbations based on a recent article that is online ahead of print in chess. But before doing so, I'm going to bring in Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W. You know them so well as co-hosts here on CCPEM. I will say that Dr. Rodriguez is off with the family this recording because one of his children is graduating and we send our huge congrats out to Joey Rodriguez and Rob as well celebrating this important milestone with his family. He will be undoubtedly rejoining us for our next recording. But John, you, me, and Peter for this recording, how are things doing in Philadelphia. Things are wonderful in Philadelphia. You bring up a really important point. You know, June's a wonderful time, specifically for people who work in academic centers, right? Like the senior residents are about to graduate, about to go off onto their new jobs, which can be really anxiety provoking. And, you know, certainly we are there with you all. Certainly allow us to keep you updated on all the critical care related things in emergency medicine. But the interns are soon to be starting, which is another exciting and also scary period. (laughs) It's a wonderful time of year, particularly in Northeast. It's getting warm and, oh, and I just got over COVID. So that was fun. It's been a crazy month, but looking forward to the months ahead. Well, in terms of sending our congrats out, yes, to all of our seniors, residents who are graduating, a huge congrats and best of luck and welcome really, as you mentioned, to all our new incoming interns. Ours at Maryland are due to start, in fact, later this week with orientation. So, so excited to be wishing our graduates well and welcoming yet another class in. Peter, how are things a little south of John and I in New Orleans? It is plenty hot in New Orleans now. Humidity is full-blown, the temperature is up there. And so Jazz Fest is over and done with. And so people are outdoors enjoying it, eating their crawfish and enjoying their beers. So it's a good time to be in New Orleans. Well, speaking of outdoors, I think that may segue into our topic this month. In fact, as we are getting out, and it is June here, I'll be honest, at least in the Baltimore metropolitan area where I live, there's not a day that I go out and my car is not covered in this sheen of green pollen. And with seasonal allergies, lots of folks coming in, well, quite honestly, we are seeing a little bit of an uptick in acute asthma exacerbations in our patient population. And to that end, just as I mentioned online ahead of print in chest in the last two months is a great article as it pertains to critical care resuscitation, and it is titled The Management of Life-Threatening Asthma, and they have a severe asthma series in chest, and this is the latest iteration in that series, and I thought it'd be a great topic for us to discuss here as we see increasing asthma exacerbations just this time of year. So by way of background, before we delve into many aspects 
of assessing and managing life-threatening asthma. I think all of us see asthma. In fact, if we're looking at the U.S. alone, the authors in this particular paper cite that about 2 million patients present each year to us in the emergency department for acute asthma exacerbations. And depending on the article that you're looking at, anywhere from 25 up to 50,000 of those patients are going to require ICU admission for asthma. In fact, they cite one study of over 30,000 patients with an acute asthma exacerbation, and about 10% of those needed the ICU and 2% ultimately needed intubation and initiation of mechanical ventilation. And as you have heard us say a few times here on the podcast, really managing these patients with severe asthma as we progress to needing, say, non-invasive ventilation and certainly mechanical ventilatory therapies for these patients They can be challenging and fraught with peril. So it is critical that we really know how to assess and subsequently resuscitate patients with potentially life-threatening asthma. So with that background, Peter, I'm going to turn to you. In terms of assessing severity illness, when we talk about severe or life-threatening asthma, what are the key things that kind of pick out a patient who may have a severe asthma exacerbation? What are those key pearls? We're going to talk about three different ways to really have a logical approach to assessing these patients. The first offered in the article kind of splits things up into a mild, moderate, and severe. And it's really a simple severity score for acute asthma in the scoring system. Under mild, they're talking about a heart rate less than 90. They talk about wheezing being absent. And again, we don't want to confuse this with silent chest. This is in someone with mild disease. No rails are present. What we do see are prolonged expiratory phase is absent in this mild case. Saturations are robust and in 95 to 100% when measured and no real use of accessory muscles, right? So no nasal flaring, no sternocleidomastoid use, no intercostals. When we talk about the moderate cases, now we're going to jump up with the heart rate, 91 to 119 beats per minute wheezing is going to be present. So we'll expect to hear that. Rails will be present as well. We're now going to see the prolonged expiratory phases and then saturations in the 90 to 94% range and accessory muscle use. Again, nasal flaring, sternocleidomastoid use, intercostals. When we talk about severe, now we're going to think about this. We're going to hear heart rate greater than 120 Wheezing is going to be present and can be inspiratory, expiratory, as well as silent chest in the severe cases. Rails will be present, prolonged expiratory phase. The SATs are going to be less than 89%, and we're going to see abundant accessory muscle use. Now, those are the mild, moderate, and severe. There's a different way to look at this. You could assess, in fact, static assessments. And on this, it's historical data point. Have they been adherent with their outpatient care? Have they been taking their medicines and their controllers? Is the severity of their current exacerbation compared favorably with prior episodes? In other words, is this current episode like the one that got you into the ICU? So one that got you in mechanical ventilation before. And so that's important. Knowing historically if the patient's ever needed invasive mechanical ventilation or non-invasive mechanical ventilation. And one of the other things historically that's important is illicit drug use and if they're using that as well. From an exam standpoint, is the patient tripoding? 
And again, when the patient's leaning forward and supporting themselves with their upper extremities, this puts the diaphragm in a functionally more robust position to handle the work of breathing. Is there use of accessory muscles? Are there absence of breath sounds? Again, that's the silent chest that we get concerned about. Is there abdominal paradoxical breathing? So if I place a, a hand on my patient's chest and a hand on my patient's abdomen, what should happen normally with a deep breath is both hands should rise simultaneously. When the patient has fatigue, there is dyssynchrony. So the chest will rise and the abdomen will suck in and they'll be opposite. They'll be moving in opposite directions. And that is not something that the patient can control. And it is a sign of fatigue. And then if peak flow or the FEV1 is less than 50% of predicted. Now, those are all the static assessments. Now let's talk about some of the dynamic assessments. And again, they're more helpful than our static assessments because they gauge a response to therapy. So has there been a lack of improvement in expiratory flow rates after bronchodilator therapy? Is the peak flow failed to improve with bronchodilator therapy? Is the saturation less than 92% despite supplemental oxygen? Has there been worsening hypercarbia based on end-tidal CO2 and capnography measurements? Is the patient now confused? Are they encephalopathic? That should be a cause for great concern. And is there a presence of a dysrhythmia? And then lastly, is there need for humidified high-flow nasal cannula, other forms of non-invasive mechanical ventilation, or invasive mechanical ventilation? Because again, those are the, our dynamic assessments and are probably, again, a better measure for are they responding to our treatment? Peter, that was really, really helpful. So we've got some of these validated scoring systems and you talked about, and the authors talk about the simplified severity score for acute asthma or more common questions we ask in sort of this static assessment and really dynamically assessing patients' response to treatment to really pick out those critically ill patients with acute asthma exacerbation. Really, really helpful pearls there. Well, John, I'm going to now turn to you for continued robust discussion. Peter's given us some pearls. We've now identified the patient with severe asthma exacerbation. They're looking critically ill. Let's treat them. How do we manage these patients? Let's start off with the pharmacologic or medication management. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I like to think about approaching asthma from a pharmacologic standpoint is I'm trying to accomplish two things. And my choices of medication are often related to how severely ill the patient is. Now, the two mechanisms that I'm trying to tackle here is I'm trying to cause smooth muscle dilation or bronchodilatation, and also reducing any inflammatory effects that's going on, maybe causing this asthma exacerbation. So I think the primary and most fundamental treatment we have available to us are the inhaled short-acting beta agonists, and buterol really is the mainstay and first-line treatment for patients with an acute asthma exacerbation. I think we're all pretty comfortable with using this. Now, the evidence behind using a continuous nebulizer versus high versus low dose MDI is still fairly mixed. In fact, I don't believe that there is any strong evidence to suggest one route is better than the other. Either is reasonable depending on really your patient's ability to interface with the delivery mechanism. So if they're able to use MDIs, wonderful. Two and a half milligrams or seven and a half milligrams of albuterol via MDI are 
probably just fine. However, if they're having trouble working with the spacer and using the MDI, continuous nebs are certainly reasonable, but there's not necessarily strong evidence suggest one is better than the other. Now, some academics maybe have suggested, well, what about other beta agonists? As you all may know, isoproteranol is probably a drug we're more comfortable with using as a chronotrope for patients with a severe bradycardia. Now, isoproteranol is a beta-1, beta-2 agonist and may have some theoretical advantages over albuterol when you're not seeing that response that you'd like. But, you know, I think, unfortunately, the potential for systemic adverse effects is pretty high. So I stick with what I know, what I'm comfortable with. Now, buterol is firstly my first line bronchodilator. Now, certainly there are some adjunctive treatments as well, and those are going to be your muscarinic antagonists. And I think all of us have used some form of a duoneb, which includes ipratropium bromide, right? And so that relaxes smooth muscle by antagonizing muscarinic receptors on the smooth muscle of the airways. Now, ipratropium takes a little bit longer to work than albuterol. In fact, it takes probably about 60 to 90 minutes to actually kick in. It certainly should be used in combination and not by itself in combination with albuterol. And the benefit is probably limited to patients with severe disease, not necessarily the mild disease. However, most of us, I think our clinical pathways include the incorporation of short-acting muscarinics in most patients with asthma exacerbations, because let's be honest, if they're coming to the emergency department, they're probably on the further end of that spectrum, not necessarily just a slight or mild exacerbation. So we often include it in our clinical pathways for patients coming to the ED. So that's going to relax the smooth muscle in the airways, but certainly we want to provide some other therapies and reduce any sort of inflammation in the airways that's causing bronchoconstriction. And this is where corticosteroids come in. And certainly I think this is the one treatment in addition to albuterol that probably improves outcomes in patients with acute asthma exacerbations. But the clinical effects take a while to work. They take six to 12 hours to actually kick in. So this is something I'm starting at the same time as my short-acting beta agonists with anticipation that I can get better control bronchodilation with the inhaled therapies. And then the steroids are really going to work after that initial bronchoconstriction has been sort of recovered. There's no real difference between IV and PO form. You know, 50 of prednisone is probably just the same as 40 of solumedrol. I think we all have heard that the, why do we give 125 milligrams of solumedrol? Because that's what comes in the vial. And so rather than waste what is left in the vial, just give it to the patient. But 40 of solumedrol is probably just as good as your PO prednisone. There probably is a potential role for inhaled steroids here, but it really hasn't been fully evaluated in large trials, although some studies suggest a benefit, but it's really not conclusive. So for me, if the patient's able to tolerate PO, I'll give them some prednisone, but if we're starting an IV, certainly solumedrol is, is a reasonable thing to give early on. But certainly in those patients with severe exacerbations, we're going to look to maybe some of the adjunctive treatments. One of them, I think the more commonly used medication is magnesium sulfate. This acts as a bronchodilator by inhibiting calcium channels and blocking parasympathetic tone. IV mag has been studied as an adjunct 
to use along with short-acting beta agonist ciprotropium and steroids, and it may reduce hospital admission in severe disease and improve pulmonary function, but it has not been found to reduce mortality or need for non-invasive mechanical ventilation. And I believe this has been studied a number of times and just recently in a meta-analysis within the past few years. So there's been a good amount of research into the use of IV mag, and to be honest, it really is just an adjunctive treatment. Well, in those patients who are really sick, so let's just say, you know, we're approaching the patient, looking at some of these dynamic assessments, and they fall on the severe spectrum, they might be tolerating the inhaled therapies a little bit, but you're really concerned. This patient's diaphoretic, their work of breathing is significant, and maybe it even has slowed down, which is always a concerning sign, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But in that severe patient, what other options do we have? Well, IV epinephrine, some cases IM epinephrine may be used to rapidly provide alpha and beta agonist. It does have some bronchodilatory effects. If you are going to start a low dose infusion, anywhere from 0.05 to 0.1 mics per kilo per minute is a reasonable starting dose to try to get some better control over this patient's asthma exacerbation. Terbutaline is a drug that probably was used a few decades ago, much more frequently than it is today. So it can be considered in the really refractory patients who aren't tolerating the inhaled medications. There's strong evidence to support its superiority is really lacking. Unfortunately, you have to be careful in certain patient populations too. I think in the pediatric population, this may be used slightly more frequently, but in patients with cardiovascular disease, hypokalemia, tachydysrhythmias, you can get some really bad adverse reactions. So you have to really be careful and monitor for the side effects that can come along with it, which include tremors, tachycardia. You can also see hyperglycemia, lactate elevation, and a decrease in your potassium. Now you can also get this with albuterol as well. Remember one of the adjunctive treatments for hyperkalemia is albuterol therapy because it causes that K shift to go intracellularly. So in addition to these pharmacologic treatments, we're often consider using supplemental oxygen. Oxygen is a drug and acute asthma exacerbations, which are associated with a significant VQ mismatch, remember, so ventilation to perfusion mismatch that can lead to hypoxia and hypercapnia. Oxygen should really only be given if the patient SAT is less than 90%. And, you know, I feel pretty comfortable with letting a patient sit 90, 92% without oxygen therapy and just really focus on the nebulizer therapy. If you're targeting a SAT greater than 92%, you're probably doing just okay. Remember, this is a ventilatory disease, not an oxygen deficient disease. So let's keep our focus to where the biggest bang for a buck is, which is improving ventilation. Now, occasionally in those really sick patients where we think the bronchoconstriction is so bad that those airways are super tight, there is some literature suggests that a medication called Heliox, which is a mixture of basically helium and oxygen. Remember, ugh, remember back to your chemistry days when you're on that periodic table where helium is that super small molecule that basically can fit through really tight spaces. Well, they've studied this and it might suggest that a mixture of oxygen with helium could improve the flow rate through these really tight bronchioles and could help deliver some medication. So essentially helium has a lower density, a higher viscosity than regular air can improve airflow. 
but the FIO2 requirements really need to be 30% for its use. And that's kind of based on how it's mixed. So it comes in either 70 or 30% mixture. Occasionally you might find an 80-20% preparation. So Heliox has been associated with improvements in peak expiratory flow rates. It's also associated with some decreases in dynamic hyperinflation, worker breathing, and hypercapnia. We can consider it in severe bronchospasm, I think, and to those who really aren't responding to conventional therapy. But to be honest, I think if it is going to be used, it often will be used after the patient's admitted to the ICU. And that's partly because it's a really far down the adjunctive therapy, but also because it only comes in these massive air tanks that have to be found in the basement of the hospital somewhere, which often takes a lot of time to get. So this is something just to be aware of, but certainly not something that I'm using on a regular basis. John, that was absolutely superb in terms of reviewing the pharmacologic management of these patients coming in. I think tried and true albuterol, we're giving them a duoneb, adding a protropium to that, the corticosteroids. But as patients, we identify them as severe, critically ill, and they progress considering magnesium and then considering potentially IV or IM epinephrine, when to give O2, and then really sometimes considering heliox. Really, really great job there. Well, Peter, back to you now. In terms of the pharmacologic management, now progressing, thinking about supplemental ventilatory therapies. And the question comes up, what about non-invasive ventilation? We love it for acute COPD exacerbations, acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. What about its use in asthma? Is this something that you're trying? Is it the evidence as well supported as in these other two conditions? Where do we stand on non-invasive ventilation? Well, Mike, those are fair questions. And so in our patients with acute asthma who are exhibiting high worker breathing, high respiratory rates, and perhaps low saturations and lots of accessory muscle use, then we might be using non-invasive mechanical ventilation. Let's look a little bit at the evidence. And so first to start off with high flow nasal cannula. So the role in management with acute asthma is not very well studied. And I'd say that some of the best studies are in the pediatric population. One small study of 36 patients did not demonstrate a difference in clinical response. However, there was noted to be some change in improved heart rate and respiratory rate found in those patients that were in the high-flow nasal cannula group. And so again, so for the humidified high-flow nasal cannula, we're still not sure that the evidence isn't solid there. Where it is a little bit more solid is in BiPAP and CPAP. So the other non-invasive forms of mechanical ventilation. So there's a Cochrane review that demonstrated improvements in respiratory rate, in peak flow rate, in FEV1, in hospital admissions, and in length of stay within the ICU. However, no clear mortality benefit or rate of intubation was shown in this study, in this Cochrane review. So you can use either CPAP or BiPAP. The authors of this article, as do I, favor BiPAP in these cases. If you're going to go with CPAP, they want you to start at 10 centimeters of water pressure. If you're going to start with BiPAP, then they want you to use the traditional 10 and 5, 10 on the IPAP and 5 on the EPAP. They suggest reassessing every 30 to 60 minutes. I would use 15 to 20 minutes in that time frame to start look for improvements and reassessing with your patients. If there's no improvement in the work of breathing and the peak flow in the FEV1 or in PCO2, then you should be moving on to intubation in those patients. 
Outstanding. Thanks, Peter, for bringing us up to date on that. And I think many of us are probably using non-invasive ventilation a little bit more in the setting of acute asthma, but I can't underscore enough what you said there just towards the end and how frequently to reassess these patients for improvement, not something to just set BiPAP or CPAP, walk away for an hour or two, get involved in other patient care. You've got to be really going back frequently to see these patients. And if really there's no improvement, well, John, then I'm going to turn back to you. In terms of initiating mechanical ventilation, doing RSI, what are the pearls? And really, most importantly, what are the pitfalls we need to be aware of in initiating mechanical ventilation? Hopefully it's rare, and we like to say it's rare, but it does occur. So what do we need to be on the lookout for? No, absolutely. So let's just say you start them out on BiPAP and you do your reassessment 30 minutes later and the patient's respiratory rate is still in the high 30s or even more concerning, it's now 20. And you take a look at the actual, if you visualize, you can think about the last time you looked at a BiPAP machine and on the screen, you're seeing that the tidal volumes of what they're breathing in at that slower respiratory rate are now 100, 150 mLs of volume. They're probably going to be a little bit more encephalopathic or just somnolent altogether. Or in some cases, there's a concern that they're now becoming hemodynamically stable. Those are the patients who I'm really going to think carefully about how to transition this patient to invasive mechanical ventilation because they're clearly failing this current step of treatment. So RSI is really tricky in these patients and it's technically challenging and it has been associated with poor outcomes, but certainly that's probably related to just the severity of disease in and of itself. These patients have really poor reserve. You have to be careful. You can't really bag valve mask them all that well because you're forcing air in, which is now taking a long time to come out. You can make dynamic hyperinflation even worse. While they're paralyzed, they're not ventilating. So that PCO2 is climbing, which can worsen the acidosis and lead to cardiac arrest. For me, I'm considering as far as drugs go for RSI, I'm considering ketamine as an induction agent and probably rocuronium as a paralytic. I want to give myself from a paralytic standpoint, the best shot at getting a grade one view. Granted, I'm going to try this to make this a very short RSI. Certainly, I want to be thoughtful and making sure that I'm really focused on getting the best view possible to make this the quickest RSI that I can make it. And then from equipment choice, one thing to always think about is certainly airflow is the limitation here. So if flow is a limitation by resistance, it's based on the size of the tube itself. So I'm using a larger endotracheal tube. An 8-0 endotracheal tube is probably preferred in these patients as opposed to going smaller, if at all possible. Now, once I've successfully intubated my patient, I have to turn to the respiratory therapist and they're going to look at me and say, doc, what do you want as far as ventilator settings, there's a couple of key goals and kind of concepts here that I've always have in the back of my head. So certainly the goal is to improve delivery of medications, improve the work of breathing, reduce hyperinflation and prevent excessive volume trauma and barotrauma. So how can I avoid any of the side effects or adverse effects of mechanical ventilation in this patient? So I generally use a volume control mode still to start as opposed to pressure control. And my tidal volumes are generally set somewhere between six and eight cc's ideal body weight to start. And then we can make some 
changes after we check a few things on our first set of ventilator settings. So my respiratory rate, this is critical. It's going to be low. So although the patient was breathing at a rate of 30 a minute, probably prior to intubation, we're not going to match that respiratory rate because they previously were breathing in a negative inspiratory pressure, which is fine. But once you move to positive pressure ventilation, the patient loses control to time out how much they exhale. So you run the really high risk of air trapping if you prescribe a really high respiratory rate. So I generally start somewhere between eight to 10 breaths a minute. And with my tidal volumes initially of six to eight cc's, ideal body weight, I've usually given my patient enough time to fully inhale and exhale on the ventilator. Now there's two other settings that we always have to remember, right? Our PEEP and FiO2. And in general, I use a lower PEEP. This can get a little bit tricky with titration, but certainly I'm starting probably five centimeters of water or less because there is going to be some intrinsic PEEP that's already present on the ventilator. So I'm not trying to compound that any further with a high PEEP. Remember, it's a ventilatory disease, not an oxygenation disease. So usually PEEP is not something I'm totally concerned with. And as far as my FiO2, well, I might start with 100%, but certainly I'm rapidly titrating down to my SAT goal of 92%. Now, while the patient's paralyzed, I'm going to check a few things on my mechanical ventilation checklist. It includes a plateau pressure, right? We want to make sure that we're not causing any excessive barotrauma. So my plateau pressure should be less than 30. And I'm going to take a look at the waveforms. I tend to do that. It's just out of habit, but this isn't a lecture or a discussion really on the waveforms, but really if you look at one thing, just take a look at the flow waveform. It's the very bottom one on most ventilators that looks like a triangle. As long as that is going up and then back all the way down the baseline, that at least give you a good sense that the patient isn't air trapping very much. So you want to make sure that the waveforms are getting back to baseline and not starting a new breath before the last one ends. Now, if that is happening, if you are concerned that the patient's trapping, despite all your best efforts, and you talk to your respiratory therapist, like, does this look like this patient's air trapping to you? There's a couple of things you can do if they look at you and they say yes. One thing is to change the I to E ratio. Now, you can change this to one to two, one to three, one to four if needed. But to be honest, the best way to increase your expiratory time is, again, keeping a low respiratory rate. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. But you can tweak the I to E ratio a little bit, but this is only going to give you an extra like 0.3 to 0.4 seconds by reducing your inspiratory time and leaving the remainder for exhalation. Now, if breast stacking continues and you start developing some issues like high plateau pressures or even concerns of hypotension because they're hyperinflated their lungs, which reduced your venous return. My next step is to disconnect the patient from the ventilator altogether and give gentle pressure on the chest wall itself to try and manually decompress the chest if possible. I haven't really had to do this all this much. I think maybe once in the past 15 years, I've been taking care of critically ill patients, but certainly is something I keep in my back pocket. Now we're prescribing pretty low minute ventilation rates between our relatively reasonably low tidal volumes and respiratory rate. So the patient is going to have some degree of hypercapnia. And 
we like to call this permissive hypercapnia in these patients. So we tolerate a PCO2 of sometimes as even as high as 90 to 100 in some of these advanced lung disease patients with asthma. As long as the pH stays somewhere above 7.2, I feel pretty comfortable with that. But certainly it's something I'm keeping an eye on. And if the patient's dipping below seven in the seven ones and the sevens, I'm starting to think about maybe some alternative therapies that I might want to consider such as VV ECMO or something like that as a rescue therapy. All right, John, once again, you and Peter have done a superb job in this discussion. We're going to just round out here. And I wanted to get your opinion because the authors end their article on a few non-ventilation strategies. And in essence, it really pertains to providing sedation. So if we're going all the way up to, and we really want to try to avoid intubating this critically ill or severe asthmatic for potential harm that we may cause with mechanical ventilation or perhaps mismanagement of mechanical ventilation, they suggest considering sedatives. And light sedation, some patients tolerate non-invasive better and perhaps avoid intubation, maybe deliver inhaled bronchodilators a little bit better. Having said that, they talk about considering an opioid. Maybe that opioid, similar to what we do, would say in end-of-life care, may decrease the sensation of dyspnea and breathlessness and relieve some anxiety or anxiolysis enough for patients to tolerate some non-invasive ventilatory therapies. They talk about dexmedetomidine in the sense that it does not suppress the respiratory drive and may also result and anxiolysis. And then something that I think, John, you mentioned, ketamine. You mentioned it in terms of the induction agent with RSI, but actually considering giving ketamine in conjunction with non-invasive ventilation in the sense that it really doesn't markedly suppress the respiratory drive, may have a bronchodilatory effect, and we can provide it at sub-dissociative doses. So let me just ask, Peter, I'm going to ask you first, Full disclosure, I get a little apprehensive in providing sedatives in these critically ill, sicker patients. We're moving towards mechanical ventilation. I get that we want to avoid it, but it just makes me a little apprehensive to provide these agents. What's your experience and thoughts on these agents? So I'm fond of these agents in a critical care environment only, not in a busy emergency department where I may be pulled to go see somebody with febrile seizures and a fresh femur fracture and someone with eclampsia. That's a lot to juggle. If I can commit myself to being at the bedside freely, then it makes sense to use fentanyl or another agent to titrate ketamine in all of those agents in someone who is not intubated. However, if I don't have that luxury, then I'm going to move forward with RSI in those cases or choose not to use those agents and wait for a tincture of time for the corticosteroids and the muscarinics to take a little bit more effect in the next 20 to 30 minutes. Great points. John, let me get you to weigh in on that. Yeah, I'm pretty much right aligned with Peter. I'm, I'm really wary about giving any sort of sedation here occasionally I'll give a very low dose of an anxiolytic, but this is only conditional that I'm checking the patient every 15 to 30 minutes, because I really want to make sure I'm not suppressing the patient's depth of respiration, that they're all of a sudden not taking tidal volumes because they're sedated. You have to be really careful here. And it's a very, very fine line between 
anxiolysis and sedation that you have to be careful of. So the idea of using dexmedhamidine and ketamine is really good. And I've had really good effect with these things, but not in the ED. I just think it's one of those that, you know, unless your nurses are very comfortable with administrating, it's like, you know, these are tools that they don't use very often. And so oftentimes it makes things a little bit more confusing for them. And I'd rather them pay more attention to administering some of the respiratory meds and some of the other things rather than trying to figure out what the protocol is for Presidex or ketamine or something like that. Well, this has been just an enormously beneficial discussion, you know, in terms of a condition that we see almost every day in the ED, not necessarily the life-threatening asthmatic, but really when we get those sick patients, identifying them, the pharmacologic treatment of these patients, and then moving along from non-invasive, some even IV pharmacologic therapy. And then when we get to mechanical ventilation, this is once again, my thanks, great, great discussion with the both of you. We're missing Rob this podcast. We're going to look forward to getting him back on in our next discussion, but really, really outstanding job. Our congrats once again to Dr. Garner and their colleagues for this really, really great article in CHEST. We will have a summary handout with this particular podcast, so you'll be able to see the reference if you want to pull that and review it on your own. So with that, I think we're going to bring this podcast to a close. We're a little bit over our usual 25 to 30 minutes. Thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for listening to this discussion on such an important topic. And once again, our congrats to all those graduating from our residency, our fellowship programs, the best of luck. And we hope that you continue to listen to the podcast and let us know how we can help your careers. And well, welcome to all our brand new interns and fellows here as you begin yet another chapter, important chapter in the month of June. We will bring this to a close and look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.